record. All right, so we're back with another uh, meeting after class, after hours, to discuss Final Fantasy VI here at the Video Game Academy. It's Wesley and Ben. How are you doing, Ben? I'm all right. How are you? I'm well. I was just saying I don't remember enough of this this segment of the game. I played it a few weeks ago now, so I'm looking back at the script a little bit because I wanted to remember about the passwords. I remembered getting the password wrong when when you have to get the little kid to step out of your way. Um, and I couldn't remember what the three options were. And I I, I love that one of them is Rosebud. Yes. Uh, what's it called? Citizen Kane, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Rosebud is your one option. Courage, I think, is the right answer, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, courage is the one that you need. And I think failure is one of the other options. <laughs> failure. Yeah. <laughs> So that's, I hope that I picked Rosebud. I want to say that I picked Rosebud just, just because I wanted that to be the right answer, Mm -hmm. Um, which just shows how like, how wrong of the audience I am for this game at this point. (laughs) Uh, But somebody was having a nice joke with that. Um, uh, So how did you, how did you experience this time through with Locke and Sellies and, uh, and the rest of the things up through, up through Kefka's battle, right? In the uh, Nose of Narsh. How, how was yeah. Um, well, I remember uh, like when we when we last spoke, which was at this point quite a while ago. Um, we we mentioned how the Phantom Train and all the adventures of Cyan and uh, Sabin are sort of much more memorable than the other two paths that you end up taking, and that was kind of borne out. Um, like I, I was amused by the whole little the little mini game you end up playing with Locke where you go around stealing everybody's clothes. Um, like the, the animation involved in that is just hilarious. Um, Cause with Locke, you know, you want to steal everything anyway. So running into merchants and literally stealing the pants off of them is kind of wonderful. Um, and you just like, it, it ends up being this sort of stealth mission of getting different disguises and finding out where you can go dressed as a merchant or dressed as a guard. Um, and it, it's nice. Like they're definitely playing with the different mechanics um, and the things that they can do with their, their typical JRPG engine. Um, like given, given how rudimentary so many of the early Final Fantasy games are, it's, it's very clear that they're trying to, to tinker with other mechanics, with, with new things that they can do. Um, it's very experimental in that sense. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a little bit Metal Gear Solid-esque. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you've got you've to steal the clothes from the merchant. And, and the reason that you fight him is, a, it's again, this thing where, where Locke is so touchy about being called a thief. Right. Mm-hmm. He, he is clearly a thief like that is literally what he does is steal but but no uh he demands to be recognized as the great treasure hunter right um and he his his phrase is pretty strong he says he's gonna rip the uh, merchant's lungs out <laughs> if he doesn't call him a treasure hunter like i thought that was just a little over the top maybe yeah, a bit graphic a bit yeah but he's also cursing in this portion of the game i kind of forgot that too he says uh damn it, I got to get out of a town here, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, at least in one of the translations that I saw. I think in the original one, it might be toned down a little bit. But um, but yeah, again, like, I'm kind of interested in the question of audience here because there's definitely some um, some more kind of mature themes coming out in, in this sequence. Um, the, 
the like desperation of Locke and his aggression, mm-hmm. um, but also the the imprisonment of the of the general, right? Yeah. And her, you know, she really takes Kefka's war crimes a lot more seriously uh, again than than we might be, you know, expecting to see this game treat that sort of thing. Yeah, as silly as Locke's little diversion is, when you actually meet Celis, everything gets a lot more serious. It's another one of those sort of sharp tonal turns like we saw with with running around in the Phantom Train and, you know, playing around with spooks only to have the gut punch of Cyan's family boarding the train and, you know, de- departing to the, to the next world. Um, it's like... I think Final Fantasy VI is to some degree struggling with that identity, like trying to figure out what its audience actually is. Because, um, I mean, it it occurs at this really weird moment in, victor- in video game history. Like, the SNES and the, the console generation that it came out on, um, like, the NES was absolutely the kid-friendly platform. Like, that was that was the system that Nintendo built its identity on. And the SNES was meant to be a follow-up to that. And a lot of the games on the SNES bear that through. Like, you know, you get Super Mario World and you get, you know, Zelda Link to the Past. And these are all very kid-friendly titles, very lighthearted in most cases, although Link to the Past does have a dark streak. Um, but at the same time, the the power behind these these video games is growing more. You can do more with them. And there's some new competition, a sort of push towards an older audience between the Sega Genesis and like Sonic being, you know, the preteen cool answer to Mario for, you know, little kids. Um, At the same time, you're seeing, uh, you're seeing like the PC gaming market is doing some really interesting things with adventure games and taking on some fairly serious and mature themes with stuff like Myst or with the, the seventh guest. Um, the SNES also has a bunch of titles that are tinkering with serious themes that are be- being more difficult, like the old Ninja Gaiden or Shadowrun. Um, and Final Fantasy VI, you know, for a series that has been very kid-friendly and very lighthearted to this point, even though it does take on the occasional like serious theme or uh, treatment of loss, like in Final Fantasy II, uh, you know, not the one that was released in America, but the, the Japanese version of 2 or or uh, Cyril's whole self-awareness in Final Fantasy 4. Like, it's clear that 6 is trying to push the medium forward um, into territory that it doesn't usually occupy while still trying to to be lighthearted and silly and, and appeal to that same young audience that has been, you know, the core of video gaming to this point. Um, yeah. oh, I think there's some really good, I think that this point of, of the stealing of the clothes, like really highlights that. Cause you know, the, the character sprites on the one hand are kind of silly and cartoony, but when you go into the battle screen, the um the enemy is always portrayed as being sort of more big and serious and imposing mm-hmm. um but when you steal the clothes then suddenly they look sort of silly and puny underneath um mm-hmm. th- there's this kind of like uh yeah this this disrobing of that um persona or something like that which i take to be you know again like you're saying uh 
a sort of playing with their image on the part of the developers, but also like a real maybe angst about like, do we have like any substance underneath yeah. of, of this trapping of, um, you know, serious epic fantasy? If we do, we've got to kind of stiffen our nerve and, um, and, and be a little more mature and maybe cut a little deeper here. Um, but that's yeah. one of the things that I find so interesting about six overall, um, like bigger picture than just, you know, what, what we're dealing with, with Locke and his adventures. But um, there's, there's a lot of subversion of a lot of the fantasy tropes, even as they were established by Final Fantasy at this point. Like the, the final boss in every Final Fantasy game to this point has been, you know, the personification of evil or chaos or destruction, like big cosmic powers. Um, and here, you know, you have the normal, like despotic, villainous, tyrannical regime but it's very clear that that the real enemy is Kafka. Um, that you know, for all of the trappings, for all of the the severe totalitarian organization of the Gestalian Empire, for all of the posturing of the soldiers and the impressive technology of the Magitek armor, you know, at the end of the day, it can all be completely derailed by what is basically just a madman going around poisoning rivers and doing whatever he wants and being able to get away with it. Um, the structure isn't what's strong. It's the madness under underlying it that is really scary and villainous and evil. Um, like, like these merchants who appear scary and then you steal their clothes and there's, and they're puny underneath, like the Gestalian empire is big and imposing and, ultimately will disappear entirely in the second half of the game as something powerless and unmeaningful. Right. Well, I think you see a really nice image of that in the, the guards, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're allowed into the city in the first place because this rich man, right, has like allowed them to come in. It's, it's sort of like a, a Vichy France situation almost. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's like sort of betrayed the town of, of South Figaro. Um, and so you get help from this like loyal servant, right? And his mm -hmm. kid who uh, they both just really love cider and um, and um, spy movies apparently, right? Like giving the right. And so you like sneak under the ground. It's great. And so then you, you find Celis in her cell being guarded by these two who are just sort of, um, they're just sort of awful. Uh, they, they aren't good at their job. They're mean for no reason. They're, you know, spiteful and, um, they they seem to represent something of Kefka, you know, among the common M imperial guard um, that he has like really tapped into as a leader um, in his own sort of nefarious way. Uh, something that you know the noble leaders like Leo we saw last time and and the mighty Celis here they they can't um, seem to seem to connect with uh, and and that's. That's scary to me, um, you know, thinking about it again in terms of those kind of historical contexts um, of like the populace, you know, what, what is their role in, in things that the, uh, that the government is getting up to here? I think, you know, we don't, we don't see a whole lot of that yet. We haven't got to the empire itself, mm -hmm. um, but we do see like these little, these little interactions that suggest that um, there, there's, there's something in in humanity that the uh, that the empire and maybe even more so Kefka has has kind of figured out and and is able to elicit. 
at in these ways. Yeah, and it's not, and it's you know like like I'm sort of poking at. I, I think, I think what it is is less, less of what we usually consider to be villainy than something even darker and more common than that. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, to I mean, I, I think of that book by Hannah Arendt, The Banality of Evil, like the accountant charged with war crimes. Like he, he didn't, he wasn't, he was just an average Joe who bought into the Nazi, the Nazi regime. It was okay. He he was allowed to do awful things. And so he did awful things. Um, It was just a part of the business. Um, You don't, you don't need to have like schemes and plots and devious (laughs) <laughs> multi-layered plans all you need is to just not care yeah. and that's enough that it can be channeled by people who do have a plan and can and also do not care um you know kefka kefka speaks to people they they understand him on some level or he understands them and is able to, to channel that into power yeah yeah the uh the soldier's incompetence is sort of your saving grace here too, because they are so bad at their guard duty that um, you can just sort of waltz in yeah. and, 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 and escape. I mean, it's, it's really kind of um, anticlimactic even. Uh, the soldier sleeping, you, you know, take from his pocket. It's hardly stealing, right? You just like take the key out of his pocket. <laughs> um, and uh, and it's a clock key. I like this a lot. The uh, the whole thing about the clocks, mm-hmm. as you go through right the game, everywhere you go, you you get the first thing you do is always check the clock because uh, either it's going to have an elixir, right, mm-hmm. which is like almost too valuable to even use in battle. Yeah, uh, sort of hoard them and, and stock up on them, or or the clock is going to help you solve a puzzle of some kind. And in this mm-hmm. case, it's pretty simple. You just turn the key when you find the clock that stopped right and the hidden door opens and you go into the secret passage to escape yeah it's i love the sound effects of the of the secret passages in this game. right they are so sad like i can't remember where i read this but but one person's definition of a good game is one that has uh good places to hide secrets like mm-hmm. that's that's what a game and and you know, again, it's like this is barely a secret. You you can't not figure this out. I think. Yeah, this is this is in the main quest. The, yeah. You cannot proceed if you do not find it. Um, no. But nonetheless, it, like it's framed as a secret, as something hidden. Yeah. And yeah. in this, in a level full of secrets and hiddenness, like the the secret passage behind the bookcase where you hear the the wind blowing. Yeah. Enter the room, um, and you know the secret passages that let you move underground and get past cordons of guards um like again this is this is a stealth mission it's all secrets it's all hiding and and skullduggery and you know <laughs> managing to to elude the detection now i want to yeah i want to ask then about celis's um sort of role in in this i mean she's pretty much um a a reflection of uh of Tara, right? Mm-hmm. She, uh, we're told in her little description, product of genetic engineering, battle-hardened Magitek knight with a spirit as pure as snow. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a much more sort of uh, damselly opening here. You know, you, you break her out of jail. Um, she doesn't really want to 
go at first. And Locke has to convince her that um, she's better off with him, even though she seems to have no real hope um, than just sort of wallowing in jail. Um, but but she sort of comes into her own when you're when you're going through the cave and she's like um, her special ability to uh, absorb magic comes out. Uh, that I thought was kind of interesting. Like I, I don't fully get her character yet, um, but it seems like she does have sort of pride in her abilities. She just doesn't seem to know like whether that is enough. Um, whether that's going to kind of win out in the end. Um, yeah. So I don't know quite what to make of her. She, she's definitely one of the, one of the characters with a lot of depth um, in this game. Like as, as much as, you know, Cyan's loss is heartrending and, and there's a lot to his character as well. There's just so much going on with Sellas and it, it's, it's understandable that we don't, we don't get the whole picture at this point. Like we get enough to see that there's a lot going on, that she was a soldier like Tara. She, she apparently was Magitech infused, but the fact that she's, you know, locked up in this basement means that either she turned on them or they turned on her. And it's not even entirely clear which it was. Um, like it's it sort of eluded, I mean, we're sort of encouraged to believe that this is one of those cases where like, like general Leo Kafka uh, has done something wrong and she either spoke up against him or, you know, he recognized that she was going to get in the way either way. She's, she's out of the way now, Um, you know, stuck in that basement, but you know, like Tara, she's, she's as much a victim as she is victimizing others. Um, like Terra under mind control killed all of those people in Narsh for no good reason. Sellas was working for an empire that she then realized was the bad guys in this story. Um, and she has to somehow, somehow come to terms with that. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, she's, she sees herself as a monster as like the product of this experimentation. On the other hand, she has this power and she's not sure what to do with it. Like what is the responsible thing to do with this power under this circumstance? She's in a really tough spot. Um, and you know, it's hard to appreciate the difficulty that she finds. And you know, if it, it almost seems like the only reason that she does join Locke is he's one of the few people who's willing to try to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, he is pretty open about saying that she reminds him of somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Which is, which can't be like a great thing to hear. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's not uh, you, yeah. it's someone else. It's just someone you kind of look like and are reminding me of. Yeah. So, so that's interesting. Um, but again, Locke is kind of in this, this position of, of wanting to protect, but actually not being all that strong in the end, right? Like he needs mm-hmm. her uh, in that fight with the, with the really the first enemy that uses much magic. I mean, I guess you, you might find them uh, in Sabin's quest uh, on the, on the phantom train. Right. But, mm-hmm. but this is, you know, this is going to be like a key point in your strategy from here on out. Like anytime you're in a tough boss battle that you can't seem to win, because that boss has powerful magic, you just need to switch Celis into your party. And it's like, yeah. that's, that solves it. Like, 
she you know we talked about how kind of broken some characters are like yeah. hers in a different way yeah makes you like invincible in a way and Sela's just Sela's has so many things that she can do yeah um, as a character like the, the when during the battle with Kefka later when you're sort of forced to decide who's going to be on what party and who's going to be where and yeah. how are you going to defend things Celis has got to be one of the most valuable pieces in that consideration because she's a strong fighter. She can absolutely hold her own in, in just like direct combat. She's one of the two healers you have access to because she is the only other character who knows cure besides Terra, as well as having offensive magic, which is impressive and dangerous. And she's got that runic ability that can, that can, draw magic in and, and prevent it from dealing damage to you. So, I mean, what you do with Sela's every time her turn comes up may very well decide the course of a battle. Yeah. Like every one of her abilities is so powerful and so useful. Um, and it's really a hard decision to say, you know, am I curing now or am I swinging now or am I using runic now? Um, it, it's a tough call. Yeah, no, she, she's really versatile and, um, her, I think that that's an interesting, um, comparison with Tara, actually, mm -hmm. um, that they, uh, Tara's the only one then that doesn't have a special ability now, right? Yeah. Um, which, which will get addressed shortly, I guess, but, um, but for the moment, it's like suddenly she's not quite as special, uh, you know, as much of a big deal as it is that she uses magic. Well, Turns out there's this other person who does too, and she's got this extra thing, um, right, which lets her absorb yeah. spells. Right? And so she never runs out of magic. She never gets hurt by magic. Um, so that's that's pretty wild. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, but so so the other sort of segment here is uh, is Tara's, you know, party. Mm -hmm. um, they're sort of just heading down the river. There's not really a whole lot to say about that. It's just sort of like you know, fighting a few random encounters and then you get to the end of the river um, and you're back in, in Narsh, uh, mm -hmm. like trying to figure out, well, so, you know, you can't just like waltz into town. Um, and so you have an, an explicit callback to, to Locke um, using that, that hidden passage thing. Mm -hmm. um, but you don't even, again, you don't even really have to figure it out. Like it's just sort of the, the appearance of a secret, um, right. but actually it's just sort of like you're on, you're, you're on your, your track here as much as you were on the river. Um, mm -hmm. And I was a little disappointed. I couldn't remember. And I kept hoping that I would meet the Mughals again. And I don't think you can talk to them at this point. Or I actually ran into them. Uh, I couldn't find them. Where are they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I for like, I couldn't draw you a map. That's for sure. Uh, I suspect I stumbled into there as much by accident as anything, but in that, in that room where, where the Mughals defended you, um, uh... like when you walk through there, I think there's, there's a door uh, close by that leads you through like an entire Mughal city. Like all of the Mughals who were participating in that fight you run into, including Mog. And they're all just running around doing Mughal things. Like <laughs> there's tons of beds against the walls and it's obvious that this is some sort of like Mughal bunker. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, they, I mean it's just a giant pile of big fluffy white 
critters just running back and forth and you know all with their fairly throwaway one line that they'll talk that they'll say to you if you talk to them um so n- not a whole lot to to see there but yeah you can in fact find them oh man <laughs> so only I, by I, dumb luck. I got so tired of fighting random battles down in the cave that i must have just yeah. And it's understandable. It is a slog through there, and it's it's not even terribly useful. Like these are old fights; they're they're clearly underpowered. They're the same monsters you fought when you were, you know, at level three, walking through there the first time. Um, it, it's it's not a lot of fun, and it is entirely reasonable that I completely forgot about that section <laughs> um, and could not name anything that happened because you know you've got these really easy fights, but you've also got Edgar doing his one-shot machine gun crossbow move, Ganon right. doing his one-shot heal everyone in the party to max health move. Like there is literally no challenge. Yeah, you're just fighting these obnoxious enemies throughout the entire thing as you backtrack there's um, there's just the one new element here which is the security uh light beam right <clears throat> and it's not really clear what you're supposed to do because of again the way that it's um translated here is kind of odd to proceed safely we must quote tag the glittering light right um so so it's like you have to follow exactly the path that it sketches for you. Mm-hmm. But but even if you mess up, you can, there's like a, a, a foolproof way to, to get out of it if you tag the glittering light. I, I didn't ever understand that. And so I would just like, if I messed up, I would just fight a battle and start over. Um, right. uh, but yeah, so this is like a weird kind of mini game-ish thing that's just kind of frustrating and annoying. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, about it really <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember like th- this was yet an- it's another one of those sort of very video gamey mechanics that that get used from time to time like this has been a mainstay of top-down zelda games for mm-hmm. as early as this one for sure but like this idea that there's only one true path and you have to follow the path for sure. And like they'll, they give you the Simon says sort of, this is what the path looks like. Hope you remember it. And then you either follow it correctly or you fight a couple battles. It's, you know, it's not like a huge deal. It's just another little challenge to break up the monotony of normal RPG fights. Um, and it's and it also is completely inexplicable. Like there's no evidence of you know Gestal having taken back Narsh, um, or you know installing new security measures. It's just like this one-off thing. And it just comes out of nowhere. Like oh okay, so we're I, doing this now, huh? I would have so yeah rather that the the Mughals were incorporated a little better at this point in the game than yeah just slog through this dungeon over again. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I mean, I like that idea of the path, though. You know, the light that shows you yeah. the path. Like, there's something there, I think, that they uh, they could have brought out a little bit more. But, uh, yeah. All right, all right. So we make it back, right? Bannon, uh, we're so glad that we have our, like, great, crazy-looking leader. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, and uh, that's good, right? So then you sort of um, get everybody back together again. Um, to go and actually reach the Esper, which has been moved to like to the mountaintop, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, so that it'll be slightly safer. I, I don't know. Like, I didn't, again, fully understand like 
the point of this, but the the in the, the end of the day, it, it sets up this very like dramatic, uh, again like tower defense style battle, mm-hmm. um, where as you say, you get to choose your party uh, for the first time. Really, you get to set up your forces, uh, and I mean, you can sort of take two routes with it, right? You can just make like one really strong team mm-hmm. and go and like clear everything out. Um, or you can try to like balance them out a little bit more. So I don't know what, what strategy did you go with this time? Yeah, I tried to balance them out and had mixed results. Um, because at that, at this point in the game, you've only got seven characters, um, and trying to divide them three ways means like even in the best case scenario, you're looking at two teams of two and one team of three. Um, so I put both healers on the teams of two, uh, paired Terra with Cyan and Sellas with Locke, which was a big mistake. Locke was not strong enough to carry that party. Whoops. Um, and <laughs> I had Sabin, Gal, and Edgar all on one team. And they, they, like, that was my offensive powerhouse. They could stop anything that came at them, but they had no healing. So it was very glass cannon, you know, do the damage, take them out quickly, or because you cannot endure. Um, really Terra and Cyan was the one that I ended up relying on as sort of my anchor. Like they, between Cyan's really powerful offensive abilities. And at that point he had unlocked that, like the fourth level sword tech. Oh yeah. He's like jumping around and hits four or one guy, four times or four guys, one time all again, random, unfortunately, but still it's a lot of damage potential. And in that fight, it was really helpful. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I would cure whoever was weak and we'd wash, rinse, and repeat until everyone was dead. And that was very nice. And at that point, I also discovered um, that if I used Gao's Templar, uh, like, identity, he huh. would more often than not use Fire 2 and wipe out the entire enemy party. Oh, man. Shot. Um, so dumb luck on Gal, but you know, that's how Gal always works. Um, Man, he is so cool. Yeah. He's really grown on me this, this playthrough actually. Um, (laughs) I, I, I like all of their, they're sort of like catch up with one another as well when they're all back together there. Yeah. Um, The conversations up the mountain I found kind of interesting. Like you only get two or three lines in each case, but it's, it's so striking because it's all of these characters who haven't yet had a chance to interact talking to one another like cyan calling out Terra for being a, a you know an imperial soldier after cyan has suffered these losses exactly. or um you know Sela's having her doubts as she goes up the mountain like is she really cut out for this uh it, it's just like you get these little glimpses and it's all so rushed at this point. Like we, we mentioned that before, how, how quickly this game has proceeded. Like these characters have all just gotten into the same room together and it's like, nope, now we have to go up the mountain. And this is literally as much breathing room as they have. It's rather schematic, but I mean, in a way it lands with force as a result. I mean, it's the same kind of trade-off that we saw on the train. Again, I think that's sort of, again, the iconic... And, and paradigmatic portion of the game is really that train because you see that, yeah, that rushedness, that mm-hmm. limitation of the technology that the game is still like pushing against. And, and you have to pack this punch into like very few words. Yeah. Um, 
And I think the best part of it all is the little exchange you point out there between Celis and Tara. The two mm. of them, um, I don't know if bond is the right word, but they open up to one another like yeah. profoundly. Uh, immediately, Celis says, so you were born with the power of magic. Isn't it a lovely gift? Um, and so that's surprising, right? You can use magic too. All mm. right, so then Tara asks, have you loved anyone? And Celis responds with three question marks, which I would love to be able to pronounce three question marks. I uh, just can't. And then she says, what's that supposed to mean? And that just, that just cuts. Like that's the end of that discussion. Yeah. That's all the time they have. I, I really, I mean the movement from right. The power of magic being a gift. I can't tell whether to read that sarcastically or, or earnestly. Um, but like maybe Celis is saying like, you didn't have to go through what I went through. Um, you just like get to have this power. Um, it's, there's a lot there. And, and how that sort of shifts to loving somebody mm-hmm. as like, as a as somehow a sequitur to that conversation is, I, I'm just very curious what you make of that. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, this is one of those where as little as we get, there's a lot of levels to interpret it on. Like it's, it would be easy to read Celis as being sort of bitter about, about magic, about having, you know, gone through this painful process, trained for years only to like have it bite her in the butt and Tara just gets it automatically right. um, for no good reason. But, you know, Celis to this point hasn't really shown bitterness in her, her character. Like she's on some level, she's, she's just trying to get by at this point. So it's just like, it's just as plausible to read that as, you know, her literally curious, asking, wondering, um, in both the sense of, you know, trying to find the answer, but also wondering in the sense of like being awestruck, being, surprised and shocked and impressed um and then that that reciprocal response um like tara asking if she's loved anyone you you get that sense that just as just as sellas might be bitter about tara's uniqueness so is tara bitter about sellas's normalcy um but at the same time there's there's also this sort of hint that tara is talking contextually like Tara and Locke were running around in Narsh, you know, at the beginning of the game. And there, there's like this sort of muted spark between them, this connection that, that is established between these two characters. Locke is her protector. She, she relies on him, cares for him. And then Locke is running around with this other random girl alone for, for a whole chunk of the game. Like you can read it as, as Tara asking Sellas about her experience, but you can also read it as Tara getting protective. Um, and I, I think, you know, the fact that both of those little lines work on both of those levels is just really interesting. And, and, you know, the game gives you nothing to go on to, to pick between these two interpretations. Yeah, no, she, she's a, so spirit pure as, as snow makes me think, yeah, no, she's like totally innocent here. Um, really means it's lovely, really doesn't know what love even would mean, right? She's yeah. that sort of innocent. Like, that seems like a plausible way to read it. Um, but I, I guess I'm also, like, struck by the contradiction of, no, she's also battle-hardened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
like maybe she doesn't love anyone because she's like closed that part of herself off to like toughen herself against loss right and she she has to be that way so yeah it's it's very tough um her name cell is also i'm trying to like figure out you know how much that is supposed to be a play on um like the heavens right celestial versus the uh the lr thing makes me think maybe it's also um, like the the goddess of of wheat or whatever, right? Like the um, right, like Ceres. Ceres, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't know quite what to do with with the again. There's like all of these sort of double meanings that are packed into this character. Um, and think uh, too, like, like especially you know, Sela's as contrasted with Terra. Yeah. You know, Terra the Earth, Sela's the sky. Like it's it's really like it urges us to go there to sort of see these two characters as being at opposite poles um, of experience or, you know, awareness or power even. Um, And it's, it's also, it's also weirdly inappropriate, like to think of Tara as the grounded one. No. Yeah. When, you know, by the end of this, she's the one who's flying off with Super Saiyan purple hair powers. It's Um, so cool. I mean, so, so cool the way that she, uh, so yeah, we should probably save that for next time and just pick up with, with what happens after you whoop, uh, Kefka and his whole army (laughs) with your, with your seven party members. Right. Four, if you make this one one strong party. Yeah. And, And then, uh. And then, yeah, everything goes kind of crazy at that point. Yeah, much as much as I think my evenly matched or evenly balanced parties seemed like a good idea at the time, man, was I hurting when I actually fought Kefka himself. Yeah, no, I, I went the other route. I made a strong party of Celis uh, and Locke and a third who I think was, I want to say, Edgar. Okay. So I just had like a really rocking party, like well balanced. Those three, I took out most of the enemies, but let a few get through to just get to um, kind of level a couple of the other characters. But, but I really just kind of left the other two parties back to to catch any stragglers, mm-hmm. um, and that worked out well because then you know Locke can steal some stuff. Celis uh, can against Kefka. She's crucial, right? She can absorb his magic. Yep. Uh, and Edgar is just he's just a monster just yep lots of damage potential there yeah yeah so you know i took my licks like it took a long time because i mm-hmm. had to stop and like heal all the time um between fights but uh but it, it was smooth like i didn't i was never in uh in terrible stressful uh like i have to get you know a critical hit here or i'm toast you know yeah solos and lock definitely got flattened a couple of times when i was <laughs> playing and it, it was very merciful of the game to just like drop them back at the, at the little respawn point and they're ready to go and you know, just heal them up and That's they're back in the for fight. You, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Cause of course he doesn't actually partake in these, uh, in these fights. Um, mysteriously. Right. Like, cause he would be really helpful actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. Come on, dude. <laughs> uh, but okay. Well, so um, let's see, we made it back. We got our party together briefly um we get to yeah actually fight kefka finally because he sort of just like escapes from all the other attempts to take him on right Um, this is the first time you punch him and he doesn't run away (laughs) yeah uh 
and uh, yeah, he, you know, is like relatively sane here. Um, he's only saying stuff like, you know, just get me that Esper full caps uh, to exterminate mm. everyone. <laughs> uh, right, moderately sane. <laughs> yeah, like he's, yeah, he's really holding it together pretty good. Uh, but he does, he does seem to realize that you are like a formidable uh, opponent at this point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you don't finish him off. He gets away, uh, and that that's gonna be interesting to see where he uh, where he takes that that rage, it, that you know, nearly inarticulate uh, anger, <laughs> and what he's gonna do with it next. Um, yeah. All right. All right. So we'll pick up with, with Super Saiyan purple hair and, uh, and as much of Zozo as we can stomach next time. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Ben.